Welcome to episode two of the Upper Memory Block podcast. Uh, Joe here, and it's been about two weeks since our first episode about Sam and Max Hit the Road came out, so I figured it was about time to um, put out yet another episode. So welcome back to uh, all those who listened to episode one, and welcome to any new listeners who've, uh, who've found the show since then. So it's the week after Easter. Um, I was able to get back to Montreal to see my family for the weekend, and uh, that was quite a fun weekend. I hung out with my cousins. We uh, played some Italian bingo, aka tombola, and um, did some drinking and had uh, had an overall good time. So in that intervening time since episode one, actually some um, some news has come up in the uh, retro PC gaming space. I guess last week. I caught wind of uh, a new Kickstarter project that's started up and that's looking for funding. And it's uh, actually a reboot of the uh, the old Sierra Adventure game, Leisure Suit Larry. A company called Replay Games, in conjunction with Al Lowe, the creator of the original Leisure Suit Larry concept, were able to, uh, to wrest the rights to Leisure Suit Larry away from what they referred to as big software. I believe it might actually be from Activision because I think they bought Sierra Online um, before they unceremoniously killed the company. Uh, so I imagine they probably own the Larry rights. So um, Replay Games and Al Lowe got together and uh, they are trying very hard to uh, raise half a million dollars, $500,000, to, uh, to reboot Leisure Suit Larry in the land of the lounge lizards. Uh, I think the game has been rebooted at least once before in the 90s to kind of a more modern uh, Sierra point-and-click adventure game format. But uh, this is going to be an all-new uh, an all-new reboot from the ground up uh, with all-new art and you know voice talent and all the modern conveniences, but still maintaining the flavor of the original game and still maintaining kind of the uh, interface and the controls of the original game and all the fun of the original game, but, you know, just in a, a nice new fancy... Uh, fancy technology wrapper. So uh, if, if anyone's interested in supporting them, I think as of this date, they're just over $200,000, and I believe the Kickstarter's going till the beginning of May, so there's still time. If you want to, uh, if you want to donate and you want to be a part, of, uh, a part of Larry and own a part of Larry, then um, feel free to, to head over. I will put the, the link to the Kickstarter in the show notes, but uh, if you also just head to kickstarter.com and... Uh, Type Leisure Suit Larry into the search box. It'll be it'll be the first one that that pops up. And there's a bunch of different um, you know reward levels where you can get your name put on a list. Or if you kind of keep going further up, they start doing things like integrating your name into the game and giving you uh, digital copies of the game and collector's editions of the game. And you know when you get really high up, they'll fly you out to California, I believe, to take a tour and do all kinds of other fun stuff like that. So a uh, really cool project. Leisure Suit Larry is a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot when, uh, even though I was probably a little bit young to uh, to be playing it, I, I have fond memories of getting Larry into trouble. So yeah, uh, head on over to Kickstarter and, uh, and, and give if uh, you are so inclined. So in other news, um, this isn't new, but uh, I only really came across this, uh, this information today. 
Uh, it appears that Firaxis Games is uh, releasing a new XCOM game. So if you remember the original XCOM UFO Defense that came out uh, way back when, that was a, a turn-based strategy game where you led a squad of, uh, of Marines, or something to the effect of Marines, to uh, basically repel alien invasions. And uh, it was a very complex, very deep uh, simulation, turn-based or strategy simulation, strategic simulation where uh, you really had to approach, you know, the different combat situations in very specific ways or in very novel ways to, uh, to win the game. It would appear that uh, a new version called XCOM Enemy Unknown is being worked on, and uh, you can check that out at xcom.com slash enemyunknown. And, uh, you know, see, I know there's been a bunch of interviews with the game designers, and uh, they're starting to get some information up about the game so if you do remember XCOM and you enjoyed strategy games or uh, if you're just interested in taking a look please uh, please go and check that out finally in some uh, personal podcast news I've uh, I've decided to take on a little side project which is uh, very much related to the podcast and I think it'll uh, it'll be kind of a fun thing to uh, to talk about you know week to week to see how how things are proceeding so what I'm trying to do is I am uh, endeavoring to build a DOS and Windows 98 SE kind of gaming machine. So I'm, I've started asking around at, you know, family and friends and work colleagues and whatever to see if they have some old computer hardware. And uh, I'm going to gather things together and uh, hopefully build kind of a uh, an era-appropriate machine that would be running probably 90, Windows 98 Second Edition, so uh, I can still play some older pre-Windows XP games and also have the ability to drop into DOS mode and uh, play DOS games kind of uh, natively in, uh, in the environment in which they were originally intended to be played. So right now I'm, uh, I'm gathering a pile. I have uh, two Pentium 3s that I got from, uh, from a coworker and I have another coworker who's bringing me a Pentium 2. And I think if that Pentium 2 boots properly that will most likely be kind of the um the basis the base kind of chassis and base hardware for for the machine and we'll see we'll go from there hopefully i could get my hands on maybe a uh, a sound blaster and an old 3dfx card and uh the same guy that's giving me the pentium 2 apparently has an old roland mpu 401 midi interface card and maybe i'll try and get my hands on an old roland mt32 an actual external you know, MIDI sequencer to try and get really good uh, audio out of that, or, you know, really realistic, quote-unquote, uh, MIDI reproductions and all that. So, uh, yeah, I think it should be a lot of fun. So right now, things are still kind of in pieces, and I'm still waiting on the P2. But um, as things progress, I would love to uh, to keep everyone informed, and uh, we can chat about any challenges I run into. And, you know, maybe I remember this as being a lot less difficult than it it really is. Honestly, I, <laughs> as much as I love reminiscing and remembering about how how DOS gaming and you know earlier Windows gaming was, it was also, as I do recall, somewhat frustrating to try and get things running properly. You know, I'm sure I'll have issues locating software and locating whatever drivers. As I recall, DOS itself didn't really necessarily require too many drivers per se, because the programs themselves would support the hardware. But, you know, I guess we'll see. And uh, hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. And if it's not a lot of fun, it will be uh, fun to uh, complain about it on the podcast. So yeah, that's that. And um, hopefully it will 
it will go well. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for All right, so now let's get on to our main topic, which this week is the 1990 Space Combat Simulator by Origin Systems, known as Wing Commander. So Wing Commander is the first in a series of 9 or 10 PC games, and even more if you start including expansion packs and console ports and re-releases and repacks and fan projects. You know, Wing Commander is is a huge game. It's a very important game in my history. I love Wing Commander. I love Wing, the original Wing Commander and all of its follow-ups and everything like that. So this this one is a, is a big one for me, and uh, hopefully I won't get too off course or too excited talking about it. So anyways, as I said, Wing Commander is a space combat simulator, and it's kind of the example and one of the f- kind of first really prime in their limelight space combat simulators. So in its most basic form, a space combat simulator puts the player in control of one or more spacecraft, which are then placed into, (laughs) suffice it to say, combat situations. Uh, With some exceptions, these type of games tend to favor favor fast-paced action over realistic physics, and uh, they tend to place the player in command of usually a single small spacecraft as opposed to uh, larger space vessels. So you'd be in charge of kind of a fighter as opposed to, you know, the Battlestar Galactica or a Star Destroyer or the Starship Enterprise. Now, that's not to say that that doesn't happen. Uh, You know, there were the Star Trek Bridge Commander games or uh, things like that where, yes, you're obviously in charge of a bigger ship. But those tended to be more of the exception than than the rule. You have games like Wing Commander and like X-Wing and and other games like that where... uh, you know, you're piloting the craft and you are, have direct control of the ship. You know, the point of view is generally uh, first person out of the cockpit. So you're sitting in the cockpit looking straight out. Uh, they tend to be mission based. They tend to have kind of a preset progression, although this wasn't always necessarily the case, as we're going to talk about a little bit later. And missions tended to have a variety of objectives, ranging from patrols to escort to strikes on enemy targets. And then later on in the evolution of the genre, you'd have you know, more even uh, planet, you know, you'd enter atmosphere and do uh, ground attack missions and things like that. But overall, uh, the mission objectives are tend to be similar to, uh, you know, missions that would be undertaken by, say, contemporary aircraft in an air force. So, as I said, you know, escorting slower ships, doing strikes on enemy targets, things like that. So that's the genre, and Wing Commander is most definitely a very, very good representative of it. So let's get on to the story. So in covering, I'm not going to cover the story per se in detail like I did last week with um, Sam and Max because that, you know, while the story is important in this game, that's not really the the main thrust of of what makes this game special. So in covering the story, I'm going to basically take us through, say, one iteration of of the game. So basically through pre-mission, in-mission, post-mission, We'll talk about it that way, and then, you know, we'll we'll go on from there. So you start a new character, and uh, and the intro plays. It starts off. The game starts off with a quote saying, "In the distant future, mankind is locked in a deadly war." So the year is twenty three sixty four, and mankind is embroiled or has been embroiled in a decades long war with a warlike feline race known as the Kilrathi. They basically look like uh, big 
uh, kind of upright standing lions. And uh, they tend to act a lot like, say, the Klingons are very warlike and, you know, honor bound and, and all of this. So you start off as an unnamed rookie pilot who has just been assi assigned to the uh, TCS Tiger's Claw, which is a Bengal-class space carrier in the Terran Confederation Navy that is currently situated, uh, you know, in friendly space and uh, is about to embark on uh, a mission to uh, hopefully retake the Vega Sector, or at the very least, to drive the Kilrathi out of Vega Sector, which is uh, an important sector and uh, owning that sector would uh, would turn the tide of the war. Uh, so the game really begins with, uh, you know, after the intro and the credits and all of this, uh, you see uh, it's a first-person view of you sitting in the simulator pod of kind of a uh, a game in the, uh, in the Tiger's Claws Pilot's Lounge. So you very, very quickly, totally out of your control, lose the game. Uh, your ship is destroyed and uh, the game prompts you to enter your name and call sign into the high score list. So as you enter your last name and your call sign, uh, this becomes the name of your character in the game. So this one first very small interaction gives you a very good idea of how this game is going to work. Everything you do in this game, no matter if it's housekeeping, if it's looking at something, if it's saving your game, if it's talking to a pilot, if it's doing anything like that, you know, in the kind of pre-flying part of the game, all of this stuff is in-universe. And that is a huge deal. It really adds to the full immersion of you as the player into this world. And this was a very, very kind of novel idea at the time. You know, you're never going to see a dialogue box popping up to tell you that you need to enter some information or that you need to input disc two or anything like that, or that you need to move on to the next room. Anything that you do in this game is walking through a door or is clicking on a locker or is clicking on a screen or something. So everything is in universe and that's great. So you enter your name, that becomes your name. You exit the simulator and you find yourself in the lounge with uh, here you have the ability to talk to Shocklass, the bartender, who's generally behind the bar, polishing it or polishing a glass or something to that effect. Or uh, you also have the ability to talk to up to two of your squadron mates that are sitting at the table, kind of enjoying some downtime. Now, in these conversations with your wingmates, they, they talk about a wide variety of subjects. You, you know, your wingmates may talk about themselves. Uh, they may comment on recently past or upcoming missions or the state of the war, or they might just tell an interesting story about themselves. Uh, these conversations, all of these conversations are completely optional but they really do fill out the story of the game and they even occasionally offer tactical hints for defeating specific types of enemies, how to approach larger enemy craft, or even if you know any uh, specifically named enemy aces have been seen in the area and maybe how to approach them. So this lounge is where you end up after each mission debriefing ends. So basically this is kind of the start of the kind of game loop so it's kind of lounge and then you next proceed into the uh, the barracks so the barracks is really where the bulk of the game's uh, housekeeping chores uh, occur but again like I said with with the first thing you do in the game everything you do is in universe so if you want to save your game there's a huge row of bunks in the middle of the room if you want to save your game you click on an empty bunk 
save your game, and boom, there's a sleeping pilot in the bunk. So the sleeping pilot is, I guess, a metaphor or an allegory or whatever for your sleeping saved game. If you want to over save over him, you click on his feet. If you want to wake him up, you click on his head. You know, so it's just these little things that are so incredible. You know, they could have very easily said press escape or F10 to enter the game menu and, you know, click on save to save your game. But no, they, they really took a lot of effort not just to make sure the actual gameplay, which we're going to get to very shortly, was a lot of fun, but all kind of the cladding around it and kind of like the, the cruft to make the game work and to make you progress through the game was also very, uh, very complete and very rich. So from the barracks, you could save your game. There's lockers where you could go and look at your uniform and, you know, see your different uh, awards, your different medals, your current rank. And it would also very importantly list which star system you were in and uh, what the current date and time was in universe. So it's important to know which star system you're in because the game is basically split into uh, each mission arc takes place in a different star system. So knowing where you are may help you in possibly looking things up or, you know, just... Uh, good information to have. Once you're done with all this uh, story development and practice and housekeeping, you uh, proceed into the briefing room to uh, begin embarking on your latest mission. So as you walk in, each briefing is, you know, a full cinematic scene uh, conducted by Colonel Halcyon, who's the leader of the flight wing aboard the, uh, the Tiger's Claw. So every mission briefing uh, ends up with you with the colonel pointing at the uh, at the star map and you kind of see the map of where you need to go which navigation points you need to travel to uh who your wingman is what the mission objectives are and if there will be any particular uh hazards along the way so once that is over the briefing completes and an action-packed cinematic that is for the time incredible looking plays showing you and your crew chief running to your ship you know you getting into your ship putting your Helmet on, the canopy closing, and your ship, boom, taking off from the Tiger's Claw. And now, finally, after all this, you get to fly a mission. So now we can really get into chatting about the gameplay. So a routine mission starts with you seated in the cockpit of whichever class of fighter you're currently assigned to. Uh, right now, off the bat, there's generally... You know, no enemies around, nothing horrible happening. So here you kind of get your opportunity to adjust which of your weapons are active. Um, and if you really wanted to, honestly, you could immediately turn around, ask for permission to land and land your fighter back on the carrier. However, this would cause you to fail your mission. So ideally what you would do is line up on your first navigation point and go. So... This is where yet another one of the game's incredible innovations comes in. Uh, it's the concept of an autopilot. So to keep the pace of missions fast, you simply hit the A button and that engages the autopilot. The camera then switches over to an external cinematic view of you and your wingman's ship flying towards the next mission objective. Uh, if there are no enemy contacts or hazards such as asteroid fields or um, minefields along your path, then once kind of the cinematic flyby completes, you find yourself, boom, at the next nav point. Now, the more important thing is that uh, if you are not, if there are some type of hazards along the way, you are immediately placed into your cockpit on approach to the enemy or on approach to the hazard. So this cinematic form of cutting out the dull travel between actions was uh, very novel at the time. Previously, the best, most 
combat simulators of this type uh, did was have kind of a form of this time compression, let's say, where uh, time would accelerate between waypoints so you go to 2x time or 8x time. Uh, the effect was kind of very jerky, and uh, it really took you out of the experience. You were kind of putting the game on fast forward so you could, you know, get get to the action. And a lot of times it was even quite difficult to control the craft and all of this when that was happening. So Wing Commander's autopilot made you feel like you were in a movie. And, you know, you take off and you and your wingman are majestically flying by the camera off to the next, uh, the next objective. So now there is not one mission in the game that obviously goes by without enemy contact because obviously we are at war here. We've been at war for a long time. The Killerathi don't like us and we don't like them. So obviously combat is the core of this game and you can really tell that the, uh, the dev team at Origin tried quite hard to make this an intense and rewarding experience. So upon contact with the enemy, your wingman will generally inform you that enemies are detected and uh, they will request instructions. Uh, you can order your wingmen to do a variety of things, such as break formation and attack, attack your target, stay in formation and support you, or return to base. Generally, break and attack is the preferred order. This kind of frees up your wingman to fight on their own and do what they will to, uh, to back you up. The goal of combat in this game tends to focus on getting behind individual enemies and taking them down primarily with guns and, if needed, the occasional missile. This can be pretty much accomplished in, in a couple of different ways and it really is very dependent on the ship you're flying. For example, when you start off the game, you fly a Hornet light fighter. Uh, so it's very, it's kind of a light patrol fighter, it's very lightly armed, and it's very fast. So a tactic in this particular fighter might be to accelerate to full speed and hit the afterburners to kind of blow past the enemy before they can line up on you and then swing around behind them at long range and engage with your laser cannons. Uh, and then perhaps later on in the game, once you've been transferred to a heavier fighter, say the Raptor, uh, it has much heavier armor, heavier shields, and it's not quite as quick. So a frontal assault with all four guns followed by one of many more missiles uh, may be in order. So the type of ship you're flying, its top speed, its shields, its armor, and its preset weapons loadout have a really large effect on how you fly the mission. Unfortunately, you don't necessarily get to choose which ship you fly on what mission, because as you progress from system star system to star system, you're assigned to specific squadrons which fly specific types of ships now, and each mission tends to be tailored to the capabilities of the ship you're currently flying. But, you know, all that aside, it is quite cool that the ships do have very specifically different uh, characteristics, different rates of turn, different rates of speed, different weapons, and you do, to some degree, have to modify your approach and modify your tactics with regard to, you know, with relation to what ship you're flying. So, of course, a game like this definitely exists kind of within its own physics engine. I guess there isn't really, or maybe there are kind of official terms for physics engines, but I'll just use my own description. Uh, I will term the physics engine in Wing Commander as a realistic arcade engine. So basically, even though you're in space and there's no gravity and there's no forces, you know, there's different forces acting upon your ship, your ship generally flies like an aircraft, so say... You know, if you're referring to Star Wars, it'll fly a lot like a, an X-Wing 
would, or it would fly a lot like, say, an F-16 would in the atmosphere. So wherever you point your nose generally is where your ship goes. If your engines fail, you come to a stop. If um, you know you fire your afterburners, you accelerate temporarily, and then when you stop firing them, you slow down again to your maximum cruising speed. Uh, there's no real ability to rotate your ship off of its axis of motion. So you know, say in space, you could conceivably be flying, flying in one direction, and then turn your ship to the left and keep flying, kind of straight. Uh, you know, if we had kind of a very realistic. Uh, physics model let's say and that's not really possible in this game that's the arcade part of the equation and now why do i say that it's kind of a realistic arcade model well the real the realism has two specific components uh component one is that there is collision detection in this game uh that's very important uh, not only is there collision detection with very large you know, with capital ships, because they're very big targets. There's also collision detection with uh, small asteroids that you have to, you know, you have to fly through occasional asteroid fields, and you can very easily uh, crash into an asteroid, and depending what ship you're flying, you may only be able to, you may not be able to hit an asteroid at all. You may be able to take one hit and take a lot of damage. Uh, in addition, there is also uh, minefields, which, uh, and the minefields even have a concept of proximity fuses. So if, uh, you know, a mine happens to impact your shields uh, directly, you take quite a bit of damage. But, you know, if you happen to just brush one or pass within a few meters or a few tens of meters of one, it'll still explode and, you know, your ship will take slightly less damage. So that's something that I think they very specifically, uh, very specifically wrote in. And I think that does kind of provide uh, a little bit more of an element of danger. Because, you know, in a lot of games, you could just blow through things and, you know, there's no collision detection. I want to fly right through an enemy and shoot him and all that. And that's not great. And in addition, you can also ram enemy fighters, which, well, generally not recommended in a couple of missions when you're really in a jam or you really need to take down the enemy quick. Uh, if you're flying a heavier ship, you can indeed ram them. And that is uh, a much faster way to uh, to inflict quite a lot of damage to the enemy. Uh, the second reason that uh, I, I term this engine to be somewhat realistic are the afterburners. So one aspect of the afterburner physics modeling really stands out to me. So uh, as I said before, in one way they're not realistic insofar as when you hit the afterburners you'll accelerate to you know 1300 kilometers per second but then the second you release the afterburners you slow right back down to you know three or four hundred kilometers per second, which is your normal cruising speed. Well, in space, that's not really, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. You'd accelerate to whatever speed you accelerated to, and you'd stay at that speed until you decided to slow down. So that's not the case. However, there is another reason, which is um, when you hit the afterburners and then you turn, your ship will kind of skid around its turn, taking quite a while to reorient itself on its new vector. So I did previously say that there was no way to create off-axis movement in the game. Yeah, well, eh, I lied. This is the one and only way. So this effect does come in quite handy in combat using the afterburn behind enemies turn and attack from behind tactic. So you'll kind of burn right in and as you're getting behind the enemies, you'll keep your afterburners on and uh, start turning. And you'll see that kind of space, you know, the space debris, which was previously coming straight at you, is now kind of going on a bit of an angle. So 
you know, in that, insofar as that, I feel like they uh, they did include some some cool effects in the physics engine, even though overall it is somewhat arcadey. So, of course, during combat, your ship can obviously uh, take damage. The game kind of takes into account the the standard space sci-fi trope where uh, your ship has front and rear shields, which take initial hits, and once your shields are defeated, your ship has underlying armor, and finally, once the armor is defeated, uh, the internal systems take damage. Internal damage has an effect on the capabilities of your craft, so weapons can be destroyed. In some cases, actually, I was playing through this game before the podcast, and there was once or twice where I took so much damage that all of my weapons were destroyed, that basically leaves you with nothing to fight with aside from, an, you know, maybe a one ram of an enemy ship. And then uh, you, you're basically relegated to either directing your wingman around if they haven't been destroyed yet. Or making your way, if you can, back to the Tiger's Claw to land and inevitably fail the mission. Uh, aside from weapons being destroyed, your engines can take damage, which reduces your top speed, it reduces your afterburner performance, or even your fuel reserves. Uh, your target lock can be damaged, which will negate your missiles. So basically, your missiles that require a lock-on will no longer work. And, you know, your computer systems can take damage, which is very, very frustrating. Because when you try and change, you know, a function, if you want to change from navigation to targeting, the screen will burst into static and you have to hit the key five times and then finally it'll click into place it's each type of damage and its severity either light moderate heavy or destroyed uh will affect you and your ship in in different ways you know once all of your mission so finally once all of your mission objectives are completed or not completed but we'll get to that in a second you eventually return to the tiger's claw you contact the carrier on your radio which if your computer and communication systems have taken damage can also be a frustrating experience of smacking the same button over and over again, which is not a bug, it's, you know, realism. Your computer ship is damaged, it's it's hard to do things. You know, so you, can, you talk to the Tiger's Claw and uh, you request landing. So now you basically have to aim your fighter at the front of the carrier, and it's very specific that you have to aim it at the front of the carrier or you will not land and hit the carrier and die. Uh, and then you engage the automatic landing cinematic. And again here, at the end of the mission, we get back into some great little details that really immerse you into the world. Uh, you know, instead of landing and showing you, you know, like a stats readout of how many ships you killed and what damage you took and whatever, you know, you, you land and you're shown kind of an external side view of the front of your ship. Kind of the same view that you were shown when you were getting in and taking off. And as the canopy, as the canopy opens and you take your helmet off, you know, you see your ship and its armor is, you know, appropriately torn up to a degree representative of how much damage you took, and your crew chief will either have an appropriately supportive or snarky or concerned comment, again, depending on how much damage you took. So he might say something to the effect of, you know, glad to see you made it back alive, sir, or you got away pretty clean, sir. Uh, so you and your wingman, provided that your wingman was not destroyed, on the mission are then debriefed by Colonel Halcyon. Uh, he reviews the mission objectives, whether or not they were achieved, and how many kills you and your wingman scored on the mission. Now, if you've done particularly well on the mission, you may qualify for uh, a medal. And if that's the case, then the next scene is uh, on the hangar bay with the doors opening and a red carpet and you receiving a medal, depending on, you know, if you 
did a certain, if you went over and above by a certain level, you got a bronze star or a silver star or a gold star. You also receive a specific medal one time for ejecting from your ship and surviving and, uh, you know, other things like that. So it's these little things where if you do really well, you get a medal and, you know, you have a, an interactive debriefing from your mission and all that, which, which really makes this game very special. And then, boom, you find yourself after the mission debriefing and any medal ceremonies or other uh, business that the uh, squadron commander wants to perform, uh, you find yourself back in the bar with your wingmates and you restart the sequence for, uh, for the next mission. So now, just now, I kind of glossed over one very incredibly huge point and one thing that makes this game very special for its time and honestly very special in and of itself you know for almost all time you can fail missions in this game failing missions has a direct and real impact on the path that you take through the game uh, wing commander is one of the first and to my knowledge one of the few even aside from subsequent wing commander games to have any sort of branching story structure so as I said before, the game is divided into sets of missions set in specific star systems. Each star system has its own self-contained story arc. So for example, at one point later on in the game, you find yourself in, say, the Rostov system. Missions in this system have you defending a you know, resource-rich system. It's filled with you know, asteroids and planets that contain a lot of resources, but it is only populated by a small pre-spaceflight tribal culture and your missions are to protect both the resources in the system and this small you know pre-technology culture from Kilrathi exploitation if you complete there's three missions in the star system if you complete the third mission in the arc successfully Confederate Marines, with the help of the local tribe, route a Kilrathi invasion of the inhabited world. However, if you fail the third mission in Rostov, the locals attack the Marines instead of helping them, and the Kilrathi take control of the system. So this occurs in each star system you fly missions in. Not only can you succeed or fail in each system, but failing places you on what is known as the losing path in the game. What will happen is if you are on this losing path, you will jump into different star systems, completely different star systems, than if you are on the winning path, and your systems become much more defensive in nature, and they tend to be much more challenging than the missions that are on the winning path. And this isn't a one-time change. You can alternate between the, win excuse me, between the winning and losing paths, again, depending on your performance in each star system. This branching story is quite impressive and really adds to the replayability of the game. You know, you can go for broke and you can, you know, complete every mission successfully and keep beating your head against, you know, this one mission that you can't pass because you want to go 100% on the winning path. Now, if you do that, the game is only about 18 missions long, which isn't incredibly time-consuming, I think. I pretty much went about it this way when I did my playthrough for this podcast, and I pretty much got through the game in about four hours. So where this game really shines is, you know, even if you can potentially go through winning all the missions and completing all your objectives, you may occasionally want to fail one to drop onto the losing path, which will A, make the game a little bit longer, 
and B, give you a slightly different uh, story progression throughout the, uh, through, through the game. So as I said, one very real possibility in this game is losing. So yes, you can proceed too far down the losing story path, and you will eventually end up in the Hell's Kitchen star system. In this star system, the Confederation is in full retreat, they're facing hopeless odds, and once you find yourself in this star system, there is no way to win the game. It's a very interesting concept, and I feel like it's one that hasn't really been leveraged by many games since then, at least not in this very specific form. Imagine playing a game for hours, investing time and investing effort into it, only to get to a point where despite your best efforts, it's impossible to win. This definitely adds a sense of finality to the game. I mean, granted, if you maintained your save games throughout and, you know, have some kind of system in place, you can always go back and replay missions you failed but if you play this game like a movie or if you play this game in i guess uh, a version of nightmare mode it can be quite an interesting experience where you just follow the story based on your performance and provided you don't die you can either win the game and defeat the killer athy and drive them from vega sector or you can again survive but be driven from vega sector in you know a final desperate escape so i think you know that is that is very incredible and this branching story system aside from all the other things that i'm that i've talked about and the integration into the universe and the the immersion and the fun gameplay and all these things and even you know more of the technical aspects that i'm going to talk about in a second i think this story system is one of the things that makes this game truly 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 special you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for graphics. All right, so the graphics in this game. I remember seeing Wing Commander for the very first time, either in 1990 or 1991, at my friend Danny's house. He had just gotten a fancy new 386, and the game looked incredible on it. I remember thinking, there is no way something like this could play on my computer. And then I was amazed when I got the game, maybe I borrowed it from him, maybe I didn't, and I saw that it could run on my crappy 286 at the time. Uh, Wing Commander sported 256 color VGA graphics, although it did support lesser EGA Tandy graphics as well. And in 1990, most games were still kind of handling 16 colors and, you know, lower, much lower graphics fidelity. Wing Commander, as I read, and as if I think about it now, is if this is indeed true, was the crisis of its day. Uh, you know, a lot of people did not have computers that could run this game to its utmost capabilities. For example, on my 286, well here, I mean, the minimum system requirements for the game were very simply an IBM PC or compatible at 12 megahertz with 640K of RAM and VGA or EGA graphics. Such as with games like Crisis, saying the game could run on, you know, a, an 8088 or whatever, or maybe a 286 with 12 megahertz was a generous statement. Uh, for the time, the graphics were incredible, they were colorful, they were smoothly animated uh, ship models where if you look at them today, they look very rough and very pixelated and almost to the point where once, if they're very far from you or very close to you or almost unrecognizable, they were an amazing breakthrough at the time. 
You know, other flight simulators and especially space simulators, of which there was really only one other one worth mentioning at the time, um, were sporting very blocky, very flat colored 3D models of craft, which from a distance looked like, you know, a couple of pixels alternating in position. Uh, Wing Commander's underlying graphics engine wasn't much different than that, but the developers had a few tricks up their sleeve to pull off the graphical fidelity they were able to achieve. So, like I was saying, on my uh, 286 at the time, I didn't have a very fast processor, I didn't have very, I think it only had 2 megs of RAM, and I did not have what we call, uh, ex was it extended? Yes, extended, there's extended memory and expanded memory. I will cover these in uh, a tech focus one of these days, but uh, I did not have extended memory. And what extended memory was a memory area that was over and above the kind of 640K base memory. And if you had access to more memory, you'd have cooler things in the game. Like there would be, uh, you know, when you were flying, you would see a uh, your hand on the control stick and it would move as, uh, as you moved your control, as you moved your joystick around. And if you took damage, if your ship took damage, your cockpit and would uh, would take damage. Your screens would crack and sparks would come out and all that. So initially I didn't have those those cool effects. And, uh, and you know, Danny on his 386 certainly did. And I thought that was very cool. And that honestly really did at the time press me, even though I was maybe 10 years old, to uh, it, it got me to press my father to say, hey, we need a 386. And, you know, of course I needed it for school. It wasn't for Wing Commander, but, you know, it was for Wing Commander. So with all that in mind, uh, the box of the game states that this is a 3D space combat simulator. Now, this is not entirely true. Uh, while they may have initially modeled the ships in 3D, what the animators did to get the, to get the fidelity over and above what, uh, what the systems at the time could handle is they took snapshots of the ships at various angles and they saved them as like two-dimensional sprites. Uh, so I guess a sprite, the, without getting technical, because I'm, I'm not uh, an animator, is say uh, you have a 2D platformer game like uh, Mario Brothers. So Mario running back and forth in his, you know, in, in his various uh, positions, those are sprites. Uh, so they're basically two-dimensional images which will get overlaid into the 3D plane. So what would happen is they took all these, you know, maybe, let's say, I don't know, 16 or 20 snapshots of the ship models in various you know they'd have straight on straight from behind a straight on side view and then like a three-quarter from underneath a three-quarter from above and what would happen is depending on which way the enemy ship let's say was pointing in relation to the camera which is you know representing you uh, the graphics engine would select the appropriate sprite and it would display it on the screen. So as an example, if an enemy ship was flying away from you and going up and to the left, let's say, uh, the image of the ship from the lower left quarter view would be displayed. So this cheat allowed the ship images to be much, much, much more complex than they could be otherwise. Since the game engine wasn't really worrying about rendering a 3D model in full 3D space and multiple ships on the screen, it only really had to worry about choosing which image to display for whatever ship or group of ships was being displayed on the screen at that time. So I'll admit it, up until this point, I've probably been a bit of a fanboy, so I should probably point out before anyone complains uh, 
that this system, well revolutionary, did have its share of issues. Uh, for one, when the enemy ships in combat did indeed change orientation, the transition was quite abrupt. So instead of seeing a ship kind of turn smoothly, you'd see a ship's rear view, which would then quickly turn into a three-quarter view, which would then finally turn into a full side view. It would kind of go snap, snap, snap. So, well, in my mind, this never really detracted from the game because at the time it looked so much better than anything else. It certainly isn't as smooth as it would have been with, say, a full 3D model or some other method of rendering the game or rendering the enemy ships with, uh, with more conventional means. And additionally, and much more importantly, and much more game-breaking... Uh, was that when there were many objects on the screen, the game engine experienced quite a bit of slowdown. If the en it's kind of as if the engine couldn't keep up with all the tasks it had to perform. This is especially noticeable in asteroid or minefields. Uh, so in some missions, if you were just flying through an asteroid field or just flying through a minefield and there was no combat involved, uh, that all went fine. However, in some missions, you do indeed end up facing enemies within an asteroid field. And this becomes more challenging because A, you have the asteroids to avoid. B, you have the enemies shooting at you. You have to destroy the enemies. But uh, what would happen is that the game controls would become very unresponsive. Maybe because, again, there were too many items on the screen. So pulling the trigger on your joystick tended to result in either no weapons fire or perhaps delayed weapons fire causing you to miss. Or if you had, say, four guns active, only one of them would fire, which would cause, you know, very minimal damage. This was a major issue and made these difficult encounters within asteroid or minefields much more difficult and at times even somewhat, uh, somewhat frustrating. All right, so now let's chat about the, uh, the sound in the game. So sound in Wing Commander was not something I was able to properly experience when I initially played it. As I said, the 286 I had at the time, well, in addition to being quite slow and not having very much RAM, also didn't have a sound card in it. So my initial memories of Wing Commander's sound effects were a bunch of beeps and boops and Nintendo, you know, NES sounding sounds. So eventually, after harassing my father, we, uh, got our hands on a 386 and then shortly thereafter we got our hands on a sound blaster emulation or a sound blaster clone card which i believe was uh, known as a sound wonder my world changed that day games could all of a sudden make sound and wing commander was no slouch wing commander had a great stable of sound effects each weapon had a specific sound damage caused great effects ambient sound effects in the non-flying parts of the game for example in the barracks that I was talking about before uh, there was water dripping from a pipe into a bucket and every time it dripped it made a little drip 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 sound and you know all these sound effects were very very well done and as with everything else added to the overall immersion into the game world uh, even more importantly at the very least to me because I'm a bit of a music nerd uh, the score was full MIDI with full Roland MT32 support and it was a very very epic space opera type soundtrack which uh which is incredibly appropriate for the setting uh you you know you've been hearing it as the bed music throughout uh throughout here again uh, here we see where wing commander really really pushed the envelope so not only 
was the music very well done, very well executed, and very complex. But from a technical aspect, this was one of the first games to implement event-triggered music. So the game's music was stored as loop segments in kind of a raw audio stream. So what would happen is that the appropriate loops were selected based on what was happening at the time. So for example, when your ship was taking off, the launch music would be playing. And once that set of loops was complete, the normal spaceflight loops would play. Now, if you kept flying for 30 minutes without hitting autopilot, the normal spaceflight loop would just continue to loop and loop and loop. And it was all designed so that, you know, it looped very seamlessly. But the moment an enemy was encountered, the music system would, you know, hit a trigger and uh, the current music loop would not end abruptly, but it would, you know, wait until an appropriate time. And then it would, boom, cut in the combat music loops. Uh, you know, this afterwards became a very common practice. And I think, I don't think I actually talked about it very much with Sam and Max, but it did the same thing. But that game came much later. But, uh, but Wing Commander, as I recall, and based on my, my readings about the game... Uh, this was definitely one of the first times that it was seen. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So one last thing before we start talking very quickly about the, uh, the development story is I do really want to talk about the documentation included in the box with this game. So even to the point of documentation they really concentrated again on on total immersion into this game. This game did not come with a game manual that told you how to click on start new game and whatever. It came with a fictional magazine called Claw Marks. So this magazine was uh, the shipboard magazine of the TCS Tiger's Claw. And uh, it contained history of the war. It contained interviews with and bios of your potential wingmen, flight tactics, maneuvers, and in addition, it did indeed contain game instructions, but they were kind of integrated to within this this magazine and into articles in this magazine, so there wasn't a section called game instructions. There was, you know, Taggart's Tactics, where one of the senior pilots talks about how to fly your ship, and, you know, it's, things like this are not done anymore. You do not get things, you hardly even get games in boxes anymore. But, you know, having this stuff that you could sit and you could read off the side really made you get into the game. It really made me love the game. I would read Claw Marks, and maybe this is like geeking out way too much, but I would take Claw Marks, you know, to bed and I would read it, you know, as some before bed reading. In addition to this magazine, the game box also contained very large scale blueprints of the fighters that you would participate, that you would fly. Uh, you know, official looking, they were blue, they had different elevation views of the ships, uh, they had all the stats of the ships in the bottom corner, and uh, all this documentation was put to use in the game's copy protection. So when the game first started up, uh, you know, it would ask you what planet is Iceman from, found on page whatever of claw marks, or how many degrees per second does a, a scimitar turn in found on the scimitar blueprints. Whatever. Um, so, you know, it was kind of, we'll have a chat about copy protection at some later date and the <laughs> interestingly ineffective copy protection systems of the time. But it was just a cool way to 
integrate this this really immersive material along with the game and i i think it is very very unfortunate that uh that so little effort is put into uh put into documentation in in current games you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for so with all this incredibleness and all this technical innovation and all these you know few issues as well in mind let's cover very quickly uh a little bit about the game's actual development there isn't a ton here but uh but we'll talk about it anyways. Now, Wing Commander was conceived by video game designer Chris Roberts. Uh, Roberts was born in 1968 in Redwood City, California. When he was young, when he was very young, in fact, his family moved to Manchester in the United Kingdom. Uh, and through his teen years, a very strong talent for video game design specifically uh, asserted itself. Before he was 18 years old, he had already created some popular games for the uh, the system known as the computer system known as the BBC Micro. Uh, as I understand it, this was a computer system built by Acorn Computers for the British Broadcasting Company's Computer Literacy Program. Uh, I'm sure my UK friends over at the uh, the Trex and Sci-Fi forums might be able to talk more about this system. I, unfortunately, do not know much about it. It looked a lot like a, an Apple II to me from the picture that I saw. Anyways, in 1986, he moved back to the US and ended up securing a job as a junior game designer at Origin Systems. There, he initially contributed to the release of Ultima V and then produced the game Times of Lore, which I actually hadn't heard about before, but I didn't realize that Times of Lore became the kind of template or was the major inspiration for all the follow-up uh, Ultima games, Ultima Six, and so on. So with, um, with these few projects under his belt, uh, Roberts set to drafting a pitch for his next game, which he codenamed Squadron. This game was designed to be a space simulator set in the 27th century, and uh, the Terran Empire was locked in a war with an alien race known as the Kilrathi. You are a rookie pilot aboard the ISS Tiger's Claw. It's quite possible that he was uh, inspired by the original Trek series episode uh, Mirror Mirror. All that to say, Squadron would be uh, an action-packed space sim with unheard of features. So this quick overview uh, basically formed the basis for the game. Uh, not all the features eventually outlined made it into the final product. For example, originally uh, Roberts wanted the mission briefings to be interactive so that there would be kind of a base briefing and uh, the player would be given the opportunity to ask some additional questions to the, uh, to the commanding officer. He also wanted there to be an option to choose from any of your potential wingmen for each mission and also to tweak the weapons loadouts for each ship. Uh, but with any major, uh, not only software development project, but any major project in general, uh, there were a variety of technical reasons and uh, timeline reasons. So uh, all these specific uh, features were dropped. And in addition, the story people made some uh, some story point modifications kind of to make the uh to make the terrans a little more friendly and a little more relatable they changed the terran empire to the terran confederation and uh you know a couple of other small points like that but overall the final product embodied the spirit of uh, of robert's original draft and that went on to uh to form the basis for the game so with the scope locked in development proceeded 
the project would switch names from Squadron to Wing Leader, and then eventually, before release, it would settle on the final name of Wing Commander. So in 1990, the game released with all the innovative features and <laughs> potential uh, game-breaking defects that we have already discussed. Despite these issues, it was hailed as a technical marvel, and it effectively spawned the space combat simulation genre on its own. As I said, there was uh, there was one other game whose name I cannot recall at the moment. Computer Gaming World hailed it as 1991's Game of the Year, and Dragon Magazine gave Wing Commander six stars, despite the fact that their review system only went to a maximum of five stars. So they rated Wing Commander above 100%. It was so innovative. Uh, this single, one single game spawned the entire Wing Commander universe, of which I am a, a big uh, a big geek about. Uh, it comprises over 10 games on a wide variety of platforms, including PC, Mac, many and many, many consoles, ranging from the 3DO to the Super Nintendo to the PlayStation Portable most recently. Uh, it also spawned a series of novels, some of which were based on follow-up games. Actually, the first one's based on the second expansion pack to this game. And um, some others were independent stories taking place in the universe. Uh, later games, Wing Commander 3 and on, which I hope to cover independently in this podcast, employed actors to the caliber of Mark Hamill, our you know good friend Luke Skywalker, and Malcolm McDowell. In addition... Mark Hamill, Malcolm McDowell, and Tom Wilson, in addition to other voices, uh, did a 14-episode animated series. And finally, in, I believe, 1999, there was a regrettable live-action movie starring Freddie Prinze Jr. I mean, overall, I enjoyed it. It wasn't very Wing Commander-ish in relation to the original concept. And actually, Chris Roberts was... uh, a company that he created later on called Digital Anvil, I believe, uh, he had a very big part in in the movie as well. Uh, in addition to all of this stuff, quite a few fan projects have started up in the past few years. Uh, the most re- recent fan project released just a few weeks ago. Uh, it's called Wing Commander Saga, and it follows the story of a new unknown pilot flying missions during the events of Wing Commander 3. Electronic Arts has acknowledged that they know about this project and stated that while it's not an officially sanctioned project, they concluded that they would not pursue any legal action, uh, they would not send any cease and desists, they would not claim copyright violation, and they would let the project continue. You can find more info about the Wing Commander Saga at wcsaga.com. I've downloaded it. It's actually a free-to-play project, which is why I suspect that uh, Electronic Arts has let it be, but I unfortunately have not yet had the chance to fire it up. Uh, Hopefully, I'll have the chance between now and the next episode, and maybe I can uh, talk a little bit about how it is uh, at the beginning of the next next show. Uh, So where can you get Wing Commander 1 these days? For me, actually, the the easiest way to get it is uh, you can find a Windows... Not only Windows, but you know, current Windows uh, Vista and Windows 7 optimized version on good old games at GOG.com. Uh, they have a package of Wing Commander 1 and 2 together, plus their respective expansion packs for $7.99. You can find older CD and uh, disc-based versions, again, as usual, on eBay for varying prices. 
And uh, actually kind of one of the cooler versions of that is a version called uh, Wing Commander the Kilrathi Saga, which contains Wing Commander 1 to 3. And that was released in 1996. I, I have that version, and uh, it's actually turned into a bit of a collector's item, running for upwards occasionally of two or three hundred dollars on uh, on eBay because there was a limited a limited run. It was a very cool version. It contained all the main games and had the uh, expansion packs available for download to add on. And they had also redone a lot of the uh, a lot of the music to uh, to make it even better than uh, than it originally was. So. After all of this, how does Wing Commander, how does the original Wing Commander hold up today? And to be perfectly honest, despite all the praise I've been heaping on this game, uh, in many ways it does not hold up today. Uh, the combat is fun, but the bugs that I talked about really do affect the gameplay. Uh, other things like the in-flight graphics, well, groundbreaking and incredible in 1990, uh, they they really do show up as quite pixelated. The transition between different um, view states of you know the ship in different angles is quite jerky, and uh, when ships get very close to you, they become almost unrecognizable blobs of uh, of pixels. So honestly, as weird as it sounds, I find the in between flight sections of the game where you're talking to your wingmates and seeing them animated on the screen. And all that holds up very, very well and much better than uh, than the combat itself. A lot of effort was put into the conversations. A lot of effort was put into the graphics in these parts. And a lot of effort was put into the environmental, I guess, ambiance. You know, as much as it's great, I, I, I'd I say that maybe as, as a game, if you've never played it before and you don't have the nostalgia that I would have for this game, it might not be quite as entertaining for you. Eleven teams of two in an exciting race around the world to win one million dollars on The Amazing Race. I'm Joyce. And I'm Al. On our show, The Amazing Race Fast Forward Podcast, we'll recap each weekly episode of The Amazing Race give you a rundown on each team and tell you our predictions on who we think will cross the mat in first place each week and ultimately win the $1 million prize. We'll also share listener predictions and other interesting information we pick up along the season. Check out the Fast Forward podcast in iTunes or at fastforwardtar.com and we'll see you at the Fast Forward. So that's it. That'll do it for, for this episode. I hope you enjoyed all the talk about Wing Commander. I hope you learned a little something about the game and you came away understanding why, you know, as much as it doesn't look all that great these days, uh, why, why it was a, a very special game and why it was a very important game for its genre, which unfortunately is not incredibly popular anymore. I'd love to get comments from you guys, either about, uh, you know, Sam and Max or Wing Commander, uh, either be it via email to podcast at umbcast.com or feel free to send uh, an iPhone voice memo or an MP3 file. And uh, especially if you want to talk about what we're going to talk about in two weeks, which will be SimCity. We're going to talk about the SimCity series kind of overall, but I think we're going to concentrate very specifically on... Uh, SimCity 2000, which I feel is uh, 
kind of the definitive version of uh, of SimCity. So I hope to see you then. Check out the the website at umbcast.com. Send me an email. Check me out on Twitter at umbshow. And uh, yeah, we will talk to you guys in two weeks. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.